Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Caitlin. Welcome to Light Church. It's such a joy to be here together. I'm going to kick us off into our next part of the series today, and I want to begin with these poignant words written by G.K. Chesterton. He writes, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and untried. Why then does Jesus say, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In his book, Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard suggests that there is in fact a secret to the easy yoke but we are prone to miss it because largely we leave the way of Jesus untried. He makes the case that unless we take the full measure of Jesus' yoke, the full measure of his teachings upon us and implement them into the reality of our daily lives, we ultimately truly do not live as students of his way. You see, our mistake, as he writes, is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. We want to behave, if we're honest, as Jesus did, on the spot, in obvious moments when it's required of us. And yet, we don't always want to pick up the fullness of his yoke. We want to rather live as the world does, because we don't really like the narrow path. It's what some of us might have done last week. We watched the Beckham documentary and then hoped We would bend it like Beckham the next time we stepped onto the soccer field, rising to his legacy, but without that single-minded focus and life of discipline and determination that was required of him. Hey, did anyone feel like that? Brian started to hire a peloton after watching that. (laughs) If we are honest, a lot of the time, we want the kingdom of God, but we're content to live without the king. We're content to live in the kingdom without the rule of the one who is king. We want the life of Christ, but we are too distracted or disinterested to actually pick up and adopt the fullness of his lifestyle. The psychiatrist M. Scott Peck observes that we want an easy shortcut to sainthood and that we attempt to attain it by simply imitating the superficialities of saints. 
We live without any of the rhythms that ultimately undergird us, the practices that shape and then even ultimately sustain our beliefs. To live with this misguided but well-intentioned view of Christianity is really to set ourselves up for failure or frustration. This is not the easy yoke that Jesus promised. In fact, when we take an honest look at it, it can be exhaustingly difficult and ultimately grieves our souls. We live in the frustration between the gap of what we read about in the scriptures and the reality of our lives. In an era of spiritual openness, perhaps this is why the research group Barna has found that there is so much positive talk about Jesus, even amongst non-Christians, but ultimately so few who claim allegiance to him. This week in an article entitled The Importance of Resilient Faith in a Spiritually Open Culture, they wrote, Jesus is more than just a topic. Christians are called not just to know how and when to bring up their faith in a conversation, but to be transformed by Jesus and to represent him. And so we then need to consider how can we model and encourage and even experience for ourselves whole life resilient discipleship. Jesus calls us to so much more than on-the-spot sainthood. He calls us to a life far beyond Christian virtue signaling. In his love, in his love, God calls us to keep his commands and to live under the weight of his easy yoke and to enjoy what is ultimately the light burden of his way. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. In essence, this is the secret of the easy yoke. It is to live as he lived. It's to live in the kingdom under the rule of the good king. It's to not only receive the life of Christ, but to also then consecrate ourselves to the lifestyle of Christ. The easy yoke is to live as Jesus did, but this is the key distinctive. It's to live as Christ lived and to live as he did all of his life. At Light Church, this is our prayer and our desire that the quality of our lives, your life and my life with Jesus would model and encourage whole life discipleship under the easy yoke of his way. And it would put on glorious display what a transformed person can look like held in his love. And this is why we've adopted John Mark Comer's clarion call that all of life is to be understood by one holy pursuit which is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. For this is the love of God, an invitation to build our lives upon the person of Jesus, to adopt his practices and to learn from his relational rhythms. It's a call to an unyielding, unending resolve. Remain in him. 
John chapter 5, verse 4, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to, to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you, unless you remain in me. This is how God forms us into resilient whole life disciples, men and women by God's grace who are moved towards wholeness in Christ. And this is the journey of spiritual formation, which we're speaking about in our series at the moment. And Mahaland has defined it as the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And we've adopted this definition of spiritual formation as a church community, and we find it a very helpful way to think about formation because it articulates the robust nature of God's gracious work, which is twofold. It's both the inner reality of greater Christ-likeness that takes place within the individual under the gracious hand of God, and it is the expression of greater Christ-likeness in our relationship to others, into the world around us. So the call to spiritual formation is the call to a meaningful, life-giving relationship with God and one another. It is the inhale and the exhale of life in Christ. This series, Trellis, is a practical examination of the different spiritual rhythms that then position us in the life of Christ. It's a, it's a look at the ways in which we can practically learn to abide. Because the easy yoke of Jesus is ultimately experienced through an intelligent, informed resolution with the whole of our lives, mind, heart, soul, spirit, that to truly live, as it says in Philippians chapter 1, is Christ. To truly live is Christ. And so we build a framework, we build a framework for our hearts and in our lives that helps us and positions us to routinely and actively cooperate with God's work of transformation. Just like a vine needs that trellis on which to grow in order to thrive and then produce fruit, so we also need a trellis on which to rest. And so this brings us to our next two practices, which we're going to talk about today, hiddenness and demonstration. If we wish to follow Jesus and walk under that easy yoke by living as he lived, I want to then ask us this question, well, what did his life actually look like? If you read the Gospels, just a cursory glance of the Gospels, we learn that he spent 30 years of his life in obscurity. But even the Messiah marked himself by the mundane realities of normalcy, family connection, religious practice, and manual labor. John Tyson, recently who pastors a church in New York City, wrote that God was in the village for 30 years and no one seemed to notice he spent three years in public ministry, but 30 years in obscurity. That's 90% obscurity rate for 10% public ministry. My friend calls this developing in the dark. 
Jesus seemed to be more concerned about potency than publicity. Still, during those potent years of public ministry, Luke chapter 5 verse 16 teaches us that he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Potency versus publicity. As we look at the Gospels, we see a number of instances where Jesus intentionally withdraws, even in the hat of his public ministry. He did this to prepare for a significant task. So, for example, before his public ministry began, we read in Mark chapter 1 that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And similarly, in Luke 6, we read that before appointing the 12 apostles, Jesus went to a mountain and he spent all night in prayer. He did this to rest after an intense stretch of ministry. After the 12 were commissioned to preach the good news, heal the sick, and cast out the demonic, Jesus invited them to get away with him by themselves to a remote place and rest. He did this to grieve. In Matthew chapter 14, 13, when Jesus hears that John the Baptist is beheaded, he withdrew to a remote place to be alone. And he did this to prepare for hardship. In Luke 22, hours before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus withdrew from his disciples at the Mount of Olives to pray those famous words, not my will, but your will be done. So while Jesus' life is marked by seasonal and rhythmic practices of hiddenness, it is simultaneously and irrevocably marked by the demonstration of God's good news. This declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so in his life, this looked like teaching, preaching, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. It looked like healing the sick and setting the oppressed free. And so we read in Mark chapter 1 that after being hidden in the wilderness, Jesus then returns to Galilee to proclaim the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Likewise, once the 12 apostles were appointed, he ministered to a large crowd from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon, who came to hear and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. After John the Baptist is beheaded and Jesus withdraws by boat, the crowds hear of this, and they follow him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd had, and had compassion on them and healed their sick. It is here that Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, excluding women and children. He multiplies the five loaves and two fish, and so, so all can eat until they are fully satisfied. And then we read that there were 12 baskets of leftover pieces. And then, of course, after the prayer in the garden, perhaps the most potent and powerful demonstration of the good news, Jesus opened his arms of love upon the cross. And he gives himself over to death. Even death on a cross, the scriptures say, so that through one man, the Son of God, all men might live. We see that the life of Jesus is both the inhale and the exhale 
of life in Christ. It is the inhale of hiddenness and the exhale of the demonstration of God's kingdom. So if you and I want to enjoy the reality of the easy yoke, we must take up, pick up this call to follow him with the entirety of our lives. And so we inhale and we exhale like our good savior. We do this by immersing ourselves in his rhythms and his relational practices. We make his way our way of life, and then we become transformed and step into the wholeness that we're called to as resilient disciples of his way. So our lives, therefore, must include seasons and rhythmic practices of hiddenness and demonstration. We must inhale the life of Christ freely given to us, and then we must exhale the life of Christ to the world around us. It's Mulholland's definition, the inner transformation of the individual disciple, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of those around us. So in reality, if we live under the easy yoke, we'll be marked by three things, a beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ, a truthful proclamation of the gospel, and a good demonstration of his kingdom, which is at hand. If you've been with us for any amount of time this year at Life Church, whether it's here downtown or in Encinitas, you'll know that we are working through biblical motifs of the garden. And we've taken our time to talk about what the garden teaches us about intimacy with God in the garden, what it teaches us about seasons of tilling, just breaking up and loosening the soil of our hearts to receive ultimately the seed of redemptive history who is Jesus Christ. And what I want to do today is turn our minds and our hearts back to this image of the garden. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 to 9 and then in 15 we read this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden, to work it and to watch over it. We spoke about this when we looked at the practice of Sabbath and work. God plants the garden in Eden and he then places humanity, he places mankind in the garden. And then the Lord causes, it's a work of God, he causes the life of the garden to grow from the ground. But not only does he place humanity in the garden, as we've read and as we've discussed, he then also commissions us to work it, to tend to it, and to multiply his blessing. He calls us to stretch out the goodness of the garden across the face of the earth. So in a garden, this means that we hide seeds in the dark. It's what John Tyson's friend said of Jesus developing in the dark. We hide seeds in the dark. We tuck them away into good soil 
where they must take root. They must take root to live, to be healthy, to thrive, to nourish, and then ultimately to flourish. Here, in the hiddenness of the soil, the seed is cultivated to the point of fruition. In the dark, a seed that is dormant is activated. Tucked out of sight, in the right soil, under the right conditions, a seed can germinate, which ultimately means that it breaks open and it takes root. And then the roots sink deep into the soil. They grow down deep into the rich goodness of that soil to absorb both moisture and nutrients. The root then, we know, anchors the plant in the soil. And any plant must have a robust root system anchored in the right soil to thrive. And we know that depending on the size of the plant or the tree, the bigger it is, the more robust that root system needs to be to sustain it, to ensure that it's healthy, to ensure that it flourishes and nourishes the earth. Throughout Scripture, we are told that upon salvation, you and I are hidden in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Acts chapter 17.28 says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Ephesians chapter 2, 6 says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. In the mystery, the great mystery of God, we are hidden in Christ. We are tucked away in him. And it's here that we can germinate. Rooted in him, we are nourished in order to flourish. And we are cultivated to the point of fruition. In him, we can stretch the goodness of his way across the face of the earth. And so we are called as his disciples to rhythmically remember where we are in him, whose we are, and why we are. And so we must continually return to this hidden place to develop in the dark. This, friends, is what it means to abide in his love. So much has been written about the effects of the gaze. I don't know if there are any literature students or philosophy students that have come across the works written about the gaze. There is the male gaze, the female gaze, the gaze of the other, the parental gaze, and I would even say we experience the reality of the digital gaze. The great works of literature, psychologists, philosophers, sociologists alike, are fascinated with what happens to our inner realities when we become aware of others' gaze. Their perception, observation, assumption, study, scrutiny, and eye upon us. Because of cognitive and psychological changes that occur, when we experience and feel the gaze, we tend to alter our physical presentation, language, demeanor, 
and even our behavior in response. We feel the gaze. In hiddenness, we do not hide like Adam and Eve did in their shame. In hiddenness with Christ, what we do is we ultimately remove ourselves from every other gaze and we place ourselves under the one gaze. We place ourselves under the loving gaze of the Father, the one who knit you together when you were hidden in your mother's womb. We place ourselves under the loving gaze of the Father who transforms us, not into altering our behavior and our language and our demeanor and response, but who transforms us into the wholeness of who we were first intended to be created in his love. What does God do when we remember where we are? What does he do when we rhythmically and routinely return to that hidden place under that single gaze? He hovers. The spirit broods and the spirit indwells in us. He makes room a place for him in our hearts to stay. And by his grace, under his loving gaze, everything that was once dormant suddenly comes to life as he causes it to grow, as he causes life to grow from the soil of our hearts. And we become the image of the sun. Romans chapter 8, 29 to 30 reads, in the message translation, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. Our impatience towards Christ's likeness, or in it, we cannot forsake the slow and sacred work of those hidden places because it's here in the hiddenness, in the dark, tucked away in him that we receive the promise of Ezekiel 36, chapter, uh, verse 26 to 27. It says this, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Resilient, whole life disciples who are with Jesus in hidden places where we are transformed by his grace to become like him. This, friends, is the invitation to hiddenness. Seasons that can feel hard. Seasons that we think we actually just need to enjoy, endure, but actually are ultimately seasons we can enjoy. Seasons of intimacy with the one under whose gaze we come alive. 
So in hiddenness, we inhale the life of Christ. And then in demonstration, we exhale the life of Christ. See, to extend the blessing of the garden like we were commissioned to do, we must have both the seed and the sprout. Because if there is only seed and no sprout, that plant does not live and it is not healthy and it does not thrive. The opposite is obviously true as well. We need seed and sprout. We must be nourished and we must nourish the earth. We must be rooted and we must reproduce. We must be hidden in Christ and we must demonstrate Christ through the way of Jesus. In her work, Sacred Rhythms, Ruth Haley Barton writes, without a balanced approach to spiritual disciplines, we run the risk of cultivating a one-sided spirituality that will disintegrate under pressure from the part of us that we have left undeveloped. A seed that breaks open but does not break through, ultimately remains a dormant seed. Latent, uncultivated, unseeded, and undeveloped. Under the easy yoke of discipleship to Jesus, we are called to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did, which through his life we see is to teach and to preach, which is to proclaim that Christ is Lord, to proclaim the good news. We are called to heal the sick, and we are called to set the oppressed free. And so, if hiddenness is for intimacy and inner transformation, then demonstration is for mission and for ministry. Before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus promised his apostles in Acts chapter 1. He said, for John was baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And like God caused the garden to grow, and like the life of God is a, a spirit, like flows from within us, that promise. He gives us a new heart as he causes the life of God to transform us. So he, this, the power of God causes us to witness who Christ is, to demonstrate the goodness of the king and life in the kingdom. At the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the church, ordinary men and women, was set ablaze. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that Boldness to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God becomes a central characteristic and a central marker of the disciple to Jesus Christ. Take Acts chapter 4 as an example. This is what we read. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And now, Lord, Look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, which we've just recently worked through as a church, Paul prays for spiritual insight. 
And in chapter 1, verse 15 to 19, this is what he prays for in that prayer. A prayer for spiritual insight. He prays for wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God and a heart that is enlightened so that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. A heart that, that um, the Spirit illuminates Christ into, that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Listen to what Simon Ponsonby writes. It's a little bit of a longer quote. I've got the whole thing up on the screen so that you can stay with me. It's just too good to paraphrase. He writes this, demonstration, with demonstration in mind. This is the power of Christ, the promise of Pentecost. Jesus said that we would be clothed with that power. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we have derived words like dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit will be explosive. They will make a noise. They will have an impact. And if we're thinking of the seed, they will break through. Their words, lives, and presence will change things. It is the fullness of that power Paul wants us to enter into when he prays that prayer in Ephesians. Paul declared that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of, what does it say on the screen? Power, yes. Sadly, however, we often seem all talk and no power. <coughs> but the scriptures reveal a God who is all power, who breaks our boxes, shatters our bonds, shakes whole rooms, and turns the world upside down and right side up. This Holy Spirit power was always the mark of men and women of God in Scripture. Power to challenge crooked kings, power to open up seas, power to stop the rain, power to raise the dead, power to overcome one's enemies, power to establish God's kingdom, power to witness to Christ, power to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, power to forgive those who sin against us, and power to lay down one's life as a martyr. Ruth Haley Barton wrote that we need robust development of all aspects of our discipleship to Jesus, lest we crumble under the weight of an underdeveloped spirituality. We need the seed and we need the sprout. We need to live lives marked by hiddenness and we must live lives marked by demonstrating the kingdom of God. As Christ is formed in us by the work of God's grace, the kingdom of God must be extended through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be resilient, whole life disciples who are transformed in Christ and who transform the world for Christ. In John chapter 8, 12, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 16, he commands, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We come under the one gaze in hiddenness to know where we are, 
who we are and why we are. And then in the security of his love as transformed people with the life of Christ, we can then face every other gaze and say, look, look who he is. Look how good, look how glorious. Can I tell you of what he has done? See how I have been changed. Can you see what has been dormant he has raised to life? We are, we are held in the hiddenness of Jesus Christ that we do not hide. We let the light of life who is Christ emanate from us, from everything we do, that we might bear witness and testimony to God, that the world around us might see and give glory to God in heaven. He hides us, the seed. We break through in his power, the sprout, and we extend the rule of his good kingdom across the earth. Hiddenness and demonstration, the inhale and the exhale. This, friends, is the easy yoke, the light burden of Jesus Christ. We receive his life, and then we consecrate ourselves to his lifestyle. And when we do, we live in a true revelation of how beautiful Jesus Christ is. We are then empowered by the Spirit to give a truthful proclamation of the gospel and a good demonstration of his kingdom, which is at hand. The practices that we'll work through in, these, in this series will speak to different realities of hiddenness and demonstration. There's a time for both, and we'll go into more details. We unpack more of those practices, but we call to both. And what I want to do as I close is I actually just want to make room for us to experience a ministry of God in hiddenness and then in demonstration. And so I'm going to ask um, Grace and Luigi and the rest of the team if they would come up, um, because I want to make room now for you before the Lord, to, to ask him, to inquire of him. What is your discipleship to him looking like? What is the rhythm and cadence of your life looking like? If you have a journal, you're welcome to take out your journal and you can write. This is just purely three minutes for you and the Lord. Because each of us has our own wiring and as such, we naturally tend towards either hiddenness or demonstration. We have a modus operandi, an autopilot. But as we've seen today, we call to both. And so I want you to ask of the Lord, what is my default? And what is your invitation to me? To step into a greater season of hiddenness or to step into a greater season of demonstration? Because we can control our lives by living too much in one or the other. But we need the potency of a rich life with God, and we need the public testimony of who Christ is to live as disciples of his way. Henry Nouwen cautions those who embark upon the journey of spiritual formation. He says that discipline without discipleship can lead to rigid formalism, but discipleship without discipline can be sentimental romanticism. And we don't want either. We don't want formalism or legalism. And we don't want sentimental romanticism. We want the life of Christ, the whole mature, resilient disciple living in his way.
So as they play, feel free to close your eyes, to write, to open up your hands, to inquire of him. Friends, God goes after our hearts. He goes after our affections and our desires, but he also goes after our schedule and our time, an intelligent, informed resolve. What could God be inviting you into? What is he wanting to form in you? And what is he wanting to proclaim through you? Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.